Thanks, Paul. Good to see everybody. This is our last midweek fellowship in this particular rotation, so um, you're welcome to show up next Wednesday night, but we, we well, you might be in the parking lot. Um, as you're getting a sheet, hopefully you have an outline. There's not a whole lot on it. We're going to spend just a shorter time looking at the last section of the Old Testament that we're going to look at, uh, the wisdom literature, or sometimes called the poets, the, the five books there, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Before I do that, just a couple little updates for life in the body. David Ward, the brother of Robert Ward and his wife Valerie, had their baby yesterday, um, all is well. Got an email from Matt and Sarah Robertson in Poland uh, about an update on their adoption of their daughter Kay. That's not her full name, uh, but that's just kind of all that they're allowed to, I think, release at this point. But she is about five or six years old, and they have a, a young daughter who's probably about 18 months old. All three of them, mom and dad, and the, their biological daughter are there in Poland. That's about a six-week stay for because of Polish laws. Seems to be going well. Um, do pray for Kay and her adjustment to her new mom and dad and, um, uh, and just for continued favor with the logistics of that. Um, so they are, they are doing well. Um, all right, tonight um, we are going to dive into these five wisdom books and we're going to breeze over them pretty quickly. And then we're going to get into uh, just a review of the Old Testament. And then we're, the last half hour or so, we're going to uh, bring Bill Harrison up here, who, as you know, is a candidate for elder. And uh, if you're a member of the church, you're going to have an opportunity to ask him questions. Um, before I do that, let me give away a book. Um, this is an excellent book called Praying the Bible by Donald Whitney. It's very short. And I have uh, uh, read a good portion of this about two weeks ago. Um, scanned other parts of it. It is a, a guide on how to take the Bible and pray God's Word back to Him, primarily through the Psalms. And it's just a really, really helpful way to enrich your prayer life and to use the Bible to do that. And you can't go wrong if you're praying God's words back to Him. So we've got about eight or so copies in here. Yes, sir, Battalion Chief, sir, this is you, Mike. It's a little hard to fling, because if I fling it and then I hit Danny in the forehead, then it's going to... There we go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I demoted you? Oh, I'm sorry. What, like, what are you, regimental chief? Or, I don't know. Sorry. I'll do push-ups afterwards. <laughs> All right, we're going to start in Job, but before I do that, let me read from Psalm chapter 1. Um, I would commend this psalm to you as something that would be good to memorize, and we don't... Many of the Psalms are written by King David. This one, I think, is anonymous. But it kicks off this whole idea of, I think, what is the theme of much of the wisdom literature, and really the theme of the whole Bible uh, as far as absorbing God's Word. This is what the writer of Psalm 1 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chafe that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, 
but the way of the wicked will perish. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercies that are new every morning, that we can gather and uh, open our Bibles and sing songs and eat together around the table and fellowship and enjoy one another, enjoy your word and enjoy the, the fellowship of the Spirit. We know there are many people around the world that cannot do that, that love you, and we pray for your grace to them, the underground church, churches, Christians that are being persecuted, pray for your grace to them. We pray that even tonight you would help us to live out Psalm 1 in a, in, a, in a better way, that we would love your law, that we would meditate on it, that it would cause us to be fruitful, not for our sake, but for the glory of your name. And we thank you for Bill Harrison and his, uh, his role in this church, and we pray that tonight would be an encouragement to him and his family and this church, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you take your outlines, we're just going to kind of skim over these things because we've got a couple of things that we're doing tonight. Job is the first book of the wisdom literature or the poets, and Job is, a, in a sense, kind of a mysterious book. It, it, uh, it's actually written about a man who is not one of God's, he's not an Israelite, and it's not in any particular time. It's sort of like, remember how we were talking about the progression of the storyline of the Old Testament, how Genesis through Esther is the whole history of the Old Testament? Well, Job is kind of like a little parenthesis or a little kind of like thought bubble that just pops up that is just a scene where God is taking one man who probably was very ancient, probably lived back towards the beginning around, you know, in early Genesis, maybe around the time of Abraham. And it's about, obviously, I think most of us probably have a general knowledge of of Job. It's about this man who uh, loses everything, and it's meant to display to us the utter sovereignty and goodness and trustworthiness of God in really uh, magnificent suffering. Um, a couple notable things about about Job that uh, you may not be aware of is that in the beginning, chapter one would be an important thing part to read. Uh, where where the uh, it's as if God is holding court in heaven, and the accuser, Satan. In fact, that's what that word means in uh, in Hebrew. The accuser comes, and and God actually brings Job up. <laughs> so so it, 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 right right away we get this sense that God is not reacting to anything. It's not like. Satan has wrestled Job away, you know, when God wasn't looking. God is sovereign over all things. And then we see uh, Job lose everything, and we see his friends, and basically the majority of the book uh, is, is this, this dialogue between Job and his friends where they are wrestling with questions of whether or not God is just and whether or not, you know, Job deserved these things, and basically these questions that still plague us today, where is God in, in evil, and how does God operate the universe? Well, they say some right things, but they don't really get it completely right, because ultimately, I think the book of Job is not meant to be a precise answer on evil for us, so that we can draw it out and have answers, but it's meant to just push us into trusting God who is sovereign over all things. A part that you, I think, should read, and we should read the whole book of Job, but one part that I think is particularly noteworthy is the last few chapters, 38, 39, 40, and 41, when Job is really at the end of his sort of rope and kind of questions God. Chapters 38 through 41 is God 
telling Job, whoa, 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 whoa. He shows up in a whirlwind and he says, brace yourself like a man. Where were you when I hung the stars? And where were you when I put a hook in the great fish's mouth and dragged it across the sea? It's basically God saying, I'm God and you're not. I will do what I please. I have my purposes that go beyond our rational ability to sort of piece things together. So I think the message of Job is it invites us to trust God in a very confusing and a very complex world where things very often don't make, don't make sense, sense at all. Um, so Job would be a, a, a wonderful book for you to just take a weekend to read, um, and especially the beginning and the end. Uh, are, are, we really get some uh, beautiful pictures of the utter sovereignty of God. Psalms, then, is um, a, sure a book that many of you are familiar with and have spent time in. Uh, Psalms is... 150 musical poems, uh, some, not all of them are necessarily hymns, like, you know, sometimes I've even said this, that Psalms is the hymn book of the Old Testament church, not, not really, I think that's a little bit narrow-minded, some of them are poems, there's different types of genres, but within Psalms, there are five different, there are five different arrangements of books, and so if you, um, if you wanted to write these down, the first two Psalms are just kind of standalone intros, But then book one of Psalms is Psalms 3 through 41, and really the message there is is generally these are Psalms of David, and they're a kind of call to faithfulness, to covenant faithfulness, to be God's people. Book two is Psalms 42 through 72, and this is much about the future, many messianic Psalms, many things that point towards Jesus and the future return of God's people uh, to Jerusalem are, are in these psalms. Book 3 is Psalm 73 through 89. And again, this is much, much about the kingdom of God, the promise of hope in the future. Uh, the people were in exile during this time, so it's, it's a lot of comfort and consolation. Book 4 is Psalms 90 through 96. And um, the, again, a very similar uh, a message there that it's, it's about the, the reign of the king. A lot of those psalms are. Of course, there's many other themes in there as well. And then book five is Psalms 145, or I'm sorry, 107 through 145. Um, and this is picking up, it's starting to be more joyful. These, there's there's a, a, a kind of worship progression in this book five, what's called, what are often called the Psalms of Ascent, what God's people would use to go up to the holy city yearly during their festivals. And then Psalms 146 through 150 are kind of, or sort of really just one long hallelujah chorus, just a long praise the Lord. And so there's kind of five books. Now, the, way, the interesting thing about these five books is that at the end of each of these books, so like in Psalm 41, which is the end of book one, and in the end of book two, Psalm 72, and then at the end of book three, which is Psalm 89, and then the end of book four, which is uh, Psalm 106, there's this repeated line through all of them that kind of brackets them all, and the, the line is, May the Lord God of Israel be blessed forever, amen and amen. And so there's this really beautiful organization that is, is, um, is, is woven into the book of Psalms, even the way the Holy Spirit inspired the nation of Israel to, to organize them. 
Now, the interesting thing about psalms is that when we think of a song in the American church, in fact, I talked about this Sunday a little bit, we tend to think of cheerful, like, you know, praise God. There are a, a great number of the psalms are songs and psalms or poems of lament. In fact, let me read to you a little bit out of Psalm 13, which um, is by no means uh, a happy, happy, joy, joy song. It is, in fact, quite, quite somber um, and, and uh, really it expresses human despair. So in Psalm 13, David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? And have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O my Lord God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So at the end there, these last two verses, David comes around and sees and 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 puts his hope in God, but the first four verses are, are really quite discouraging. Where are you, God? And that's not sung very often. In fact, our, our team, does, Paul and the guys do sing this psalm sometimes if you're here, but that's not, you know, sometimes my point is, is that the psalms give voice to the reality of human emotion. Life is hard. Life is difficult. Life will cause us to cry out. Life will cause us to Calls us, will, will cause despair, and the Psalms give voice to that. Another interesting aspect about some of the Psalms is that there are some what are called imprecatory prayers within some of the Psalms. And what is the word imprecatory? It means it means that you're calling down God's judgment. You're basically pleading with God to judge your enemies. And so there's going kind to of be a debate theologically through the years: is can Christians sort of validly pray imprecatory prayers for their you know, for their enemies. I, I would say, well, I'd be careful about that. I think we can sort of take God's side against the injustice of the world, but I think that's sort of dangerous ground to be on when we say, ah, well, clearly, you know, this guy at work that's bothering me, I'm going to pray this psalm here, Lord, would you dash his teeth against the rocks, you know? Like, well, <laughs> uh, I, th- I think that there's a bigger lesson going on there in that psalm that we're, we're we're you know, taking God's side against the injustice of the world. And I think we need to be careful about personalizing those imprecatory prayers. Um, but, but again, it's this range of human emotion that comes through in the Psalms. By the way, that book that uh, Mike got is uh, Praying the Bible. The, the author spends a lot of time talking about how to pray through the Psalms. And he gives a little breakdown on... Uh, like taking days in the month and praying through a certain number of psalms, and it's really, really helpful. So if you want to pick up that book, there's some in the resource room, or you can just order it on on Amazon. Um, Okay, Proverbs then. Um, Proverbs, again, uh, another, I'm sure, very familiar portion of Scripture to many of you. 31 Proverbs, mainly written by, and by the way, back to Psalms, about half of them were written by David, um, then some by others. Moses has actually written one or two in there. Solomon's written a few. Some of them are by Asaph. Uh, and then there's some anonymous ones. But oftentimes people think David wrote all the Psalms. He didn't, he didn't write all of them, but a, a good number of them. Proverbs then is written by uh, Solomon, David's son primarily. And uh, it's really a book of wisdom literature. Now I think where... Uh, it, uh, the, 
where Christians sometimes get tripped up with Psalms is they express general wisdom about the way God has ordered the world. They are not promises. So we need, that's where we need to think about genre and literature. The Proverbs are, it's wisdom literature that expresses that this is generally the way life works, right? I can remember um, uh, sitting with a lady in my office years ago, and she was frustrated about um, her children, and she was was really quoting that Proverb 22, I think it is, where it says, train up a child in the way that you should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And she was angry at God because she felt that she had done everything that she could as a parent, and that she felt like God hadn't honored his end of that promise. And I was trying to kind of help that sister see, well, well, first of all, the script has certainly not been written on your child. I mean, you know, we're going to continue to pray that the Lord would draw them back, but but that's not a that doesn't mean that everything is going to go exactly according to the wisdom of the Psalms, because if it did, this world would be a very, very different place, wouldn't it? But it's a general principles about uh, wisdom, about living in a wise way. I think the theme of Proverbs, to me, if I could just say it in just one phrase, it's fear God. Uh, the, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Um, and a nice little technique I got onto early in my Christian life, there are 31 Psalms. And so just reading a Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, 31 Proverbs, reading a proverb a day corresponding to the date of the, of the month uh, is, is very helpful. And um, that's become... I do, don't do that every day, but I would say probably two-thirds of the way through the month, I'm kind of opening my Bible and just, when I have some downtime, just, you know, playing kind of Bible roulette, you know, when you're just sort of sitting and just going to a, a proverb, and it's become a helpful habit for me. Then Ecclesiastes, after Proverbs, is um, written by Solomon as well, and it's a very interesting book. Um, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like, wow, this what, what, what's, what's the point of this book? And Solomon is this man of great wealth, um, great wisdom, great immorality in a lot of ways, great vanity. And really the first part of the book is Solomon talking about how vain life is and how foolish his earthly pursuits have been. But he takes a turn towards the end and he realizes that you might think that the point of Ecclesiastes is life is all, all is vanity. Like what, what, life is worthless, really, because what does it matter? But actually it turns, and, and it, towards the end, Solomon realizes, and the Holy Spirit points us to, that actually life is actually very meaningful. And then I think the high point of Ecclesiastes, for me, is the very end of it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through the end, it says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, being aware of anything, be, be, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a, weir, is a weariness to the flesh. And then verse 13 and 14. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so after this long speech and discourse on really the vanity of life on this earth, he comes to this conclusion that life does matter. God will judge. Fear him. Live your life circumspectly 
in the fear of the Lord. And then finally, Song of Songs, or sometimes called the Song of Solomon, is not written by Solomon, but he shows up in it a few times. Um, And this is an interesting book. If you've ever read the Song of Songs, um, it is essentially a rather erotic um, exchange about human love. And um, many people have interpreted the Song of Songs uh, differently over the years. Some people think that it is, um, the Old Testament Jews sort of saw the, 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 the erotic love and sort of the, the chasing of love between this man and a woman and the, at times the, the exchanges between the man and a woman in this, this uh, book as being a picture of God and his relationship with Israel. And I think there's some truth to that. And then in the New Testament, many Christians have seen it as a, a picture of Christ and the church, sort of a, an analogy of that. Um, I, I think it certainly has aspects of that. I think you can press those points too far. I think, in a sense, it's really a collection of uh, ancient poetry focusing on the gift of love. And I do think, ultimately, it is pointing us towards um, this future, because much of what's happening in, in the Song of Songs is in the context of a garden, and I think it's actually pointing us not just to human love, but beyond that to this time when uh, we, humanity will be restored and joy and pleasure um, will be ours forever and ever and ever, not in a sexual way, but, um, but certainly um, in, in, with Christ forever and ever and ever. This is one of those books that's difficult to illustrate in the children's Bible, right? Um, and even the, like, even the depictions that they have um, of, uh, like, even the descriptions, like, that the man will speak about um, some of the characteristics of a woman. Like, I would not recommend, if you're a guy trying to romance your wife, like, reading some of that. It, it, she'll, it will not be a compliment to her. Because what's going on there is that Hebrew metaphors are not meant to be visual. They're saying other things, and there's a little bit of a, of a cultural gap there between us. And so if you tell your wife that her hair looks like a herd of you know, cows or something like that, or you know, her, her neck is like a you know, fortress of bricks, it's probably, it's, I don't know, it's probably not, might not go so well for you. I would recommend some other um, technique. Um, but, but let's remember then that these wisdom books are fitting in along the history. And I think what we want, I want you to think about, if you're very new to the Old Testament, is the beauty of the wisdom books is, is, is God's not just telling a rigid story. And he's not just commanding through the prophets rebuke and command. But he's giving voice to human Pain, joy, ecstasy, fear, teaching wisdom. I mean, it, it, it's an amazing really, condescension of God to give voice to the things that we experience on a daily basis. So don't, don't miss out uh, on, on uh, the wisdom books um, if, you, if you're not in the habit of reading them. I think you should really make Psalms a regular diet. Proverbs, a regular diet. And don't miss out on Job and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs because they're just kind of a different genre. Read through them a few times and you, you will be blessed. Okay, let's just review the, 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 the structure and then we'll wrap it up. Um, remember, 
the first, the first 17 books of the Bible, starting in Genesis through Esther. What are these first 17 books? The history books, right? And so from Genesis to Esther, the first 17 books, the first five books are um, called the Pentateuch or the Torah often. That just means teaching. And the Pentateuch is a word that means the first five books. These first five books are also part of the history books, a lot of times classified. And that is the storyline. So if you have been intimidated by the Old Testament and you want to know the story of God's dealing with his people, and you just felt like, oh, I don't know if I can tackle all those 39 books, you can read these 17 books. And although there may be some things that make you scratch your head in there, it's just basically narrative. You can understand it, okay? Uh, you can get what's going on in these 17 books. And then remember, we've got, we went over them tonight, we, the, 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 the five wisdom books. And then the next 17 books are the prophets, right? Which Robert did a great job of summarizing for us last week. If you missed that, I think it's on the internet. And these prophets are, all these prophets are speaking into the history of God's dealing with his, with his people primarily towards the end, right around First and Second Kings, all right? So does that give you a better handle? I, I know I've repeated that a lot, but, you know, sometimes you've got to hear things over and over and over again um, to, to kind of, kind of, I know that's the way I learned by repetition. And so uh, I want you to have a better handle of just how the Old Testament is organized. A couple, I, I did this before too, but I, again, just by way of review, reading the Old Testament, a couple recommendations. I am all for Bible reading plans. I think they can be very, very helpful. I don't mean to discourage you in using them at all. Just the way I'm wired, I get bogged down in the Old Testament on my Bible reading plan because I feel like the Bible, my Bible, just the way my personality is, maybe I just don't have a good attention span, but I need to read long chunks of the Old Testament. If I, if I chop it up too much, I sort of lose the flow, right? So I generally use Bible reading plans for the New Testament, and then I just sort of map out, okay, January, I'm going to be reading, you know, numbers or whatever, or that's just, I'm not, that's just for me. I'm just saying one recommendation might be to read through whole books of the Old Testament, especially the narrative books, without the pressure that you have to understand everything. You did not understand English the first time you heard it. Right, and you because you're a baby, but the more you heard it, you started to get it. And I, I would I would encourage reading large chunks, large sections. So points A and B really go there together um, in in one sitting. Uh, and then see, read knowing where you are on the timeline. Know that if you're in one of the prophets, and it's very challenging to understand what's going on, it might be helpful for you to understand. Okay, this prophet is at the beginning of uh, the prophets, and he's really warning God's people if they, if they don't obey God, then he's going to bring judgment. This prophet may be kind of post-exile and bringing comfort, and so just kind of knowing where you are is, is very helpful on the timeline. And then finally, probably the most important, is read Christocentrically. Read with Christ as the sinner. Avoid moralizing the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is not mainly about uh, how God wanted his people to just act better. It's not just morality tales for us to learn from, how to be more courageous like David 
or you know, better public speakers like Moses or whatever. It's meant to point us towards the true and better king, the true and better prophet, the true and better priest, the true and better sacrifice, the true and better tabernacle, the true and better temple, Jesus. So read knowing that ultimately the Old Testament, it, the key to understanding the Old Testament is knowing that it all ultimately points towards Jesus. And that's in fact what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24. And, verse, and John chapter 5, he says those, those very things. So any, any questions real quick before we bring Bill up here? Danny. It's really more of a thought question. Yeah. One of the things on here you said is creating the Bible kind of the way we are in the timeline. And um, the solution he gave was this sort of thing about the chronological study Bible. Mm. That breaks mm-hmm. the whole Bible up into epochs and like those mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Amen. That's great. If you're interested in that, maybe talk to Danny afterwards and get some more info on that. That's good. Anybody else have any? Yeah, Bob. Yes. Oh, where did I get my shirt? By the way, this is Uncle Chuck on my shirt, if you didn't know. Um, I'm going to share this website with you, but Teresa, if he ends up spending a lot of money on this website, I am not responsible for that, okay? Because there's a whole bunch of gear on there. I've got Charles Spurgeon and John Calvin coffee mugs and uh, missionalware.com, missionalware.com. Virtually every Reformed theologian has his own shirt. It is awesome. (laughs) Extra swag. Oh, like, is that like a discount? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Bob, you can blow a lot of money on this website, okay? So I just, yeah, read Proverbs about spending your money wisely before you... Before you get on that website. <laughs> yeah, missionalware.com. Any other questions? Yes, Cindy. Reading. We started reading the prophets before we started this group, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. once you gave us the timeline, they were so much easier to mm, understand. Praise God. Because we were able to go back and say, now, yeah. what, was that a pre-exile? Mm-hmm. Was that exile? Mm-hmm. It's really helped yeah. a lot. Praise God. Awesome. 